That should do it. That should do it. That should do it all right. Yes, how you done? We're back. We're out here. Quite overcast day, but not humid. It's a miracle. It's a miraculous occurrence. It's all cloudy and, and gray, but the air is not thick like a swollen sponge. Not bad. How's everybody doing? I hope okay. Oh no, I got a cord. I got a cord flipped here. Oh dear, I got a situation. I got a situation here. There we go. Measure twice, cut once. Oh, somebody says their entire state is burning. Is that Colorado? Yeah, that good. If you've got trees uh, in your state, you're in trouble. But that's also where where the air gets made. So it's kind of a kind of a bummer. Where are you gonna run, Sinner Man? Where are you gonna run? I don't think there's anywhere to go. But we'll see. So I talked last time a little bit about uh, QAnon and I was thinking some more about QAnon and how QAnon Really is. They call they say that they call themselves the Great Awakening, right? They say that explicitly. They genuinely are. If you think about it, you could you if you wanted to squint through the right aperture, you could call them the Third Great Awakening of American uh, Protestant Christianity, because you had a First Great Awakening in the colonial era when uh, people were coming to grips with the fact that they were entering into totally new social relationships. Uh, in, in, in ways that they'd never expected uh, or had come to, you know, uh, had, had been acculturated to, uh, and, and that needed to be reconciled. And so you saw this huge, intense uh, efflorescence of, uh, of religious piety to sort of deal with the dislocations of creating a new structure for social living. The Second Great Awakening happened uh, at the dawn of the Industrial Age. Uh, Centered, as I talked about before on the stream, and the Erie Canal area, the spots in the in the yeoman farming heartland of uh, New York that were being infiltrated with this this commercial culture that was antithetical to everyone's understanding of the social formations that they sort of come to terms with, and so another explosion of religious piety came up to kind of re to uh, to reassess and restructure the relationship between uh, the conditions of, of, of a industrializing America and religion. Mormons, who, Joseph Smith being part of that, uh, burned over district uh, 
movement being the ones who perfected it the most, the ones who took it to the farthest. And I think if you think of the way that the way QAnon is structuring itself specifically, and now apparently they're kidnapping people's children because they're fr- they, now they're now they've taken family court, which has been an incredibly fraught area and a huge uh, nexus of alienation and and uh, and conspiracy theory and 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 hostility towards conventional post '60s cultural norms, fathers' rights movement. Well, not only is your bitch wife and the bitch judge, you know, they're not just taking your kids because they're. Uh, because they're damn feminazis, it's because they're going to have them be molested by uh, the evil lizard people in charge. It adds an extra level to that, to that narrative. So they're getting more intense. They're getting more popular. We've got them in Congress now. There's going to be at least two Q people in Congress uh, with the start of the next district, next uh, the next Congress. So that's awesome. And they call themselves the Great Awakening. And you could really look at it as a third Great Awakening because if the Second Great Awakening helped create the Protestantism that led to prosperity gospel, which is sort of the, the closest thing you could come to an American theology. If you want to say, like, what's the American theology, regardless of any specific you know, doctrinal issues, it's prosperity gospel. But now we are in the era of lack of prosperity gospel. Like, there's no more prosperity. So how do you square that? And their answer is, with this hugely, you know, Baroque narrative that, that rescues the, the holy parts of what they think of as America from the corrupt parts and, and, and joins them to try to purify themselves through observation. That's why it's the third one. That's why it's, that's why it's the Pringle one. It's the one where we're already deracinated too much to turn it into a social movement, partially because Christianity has gone from sort of the text of social uh, relationships to the subtext because we've circularized the culture. Uh, and of course, these guys aren't going to do anything. They're not, they mostly just go to rallies. But I mean, if you think of those as like uh, as uh, modern-day tent revivals, it tracks. And what's my favorite thing about it is that I've talked about how Q is Gnostic, you know, like we all are, in terms of seeing the world as a, as a, as a fallen and deformed thing built by evil that keep us from the real thing as a way to make sense of the contradictions of life. And they are, the cue starts with the premise, right? There's the real America, and then there's this deep state that dis- deforms it. But then Trump will come and stop them. Trump will save us. Trump will bring about the end times. But like with any millenniary uh, 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 religious tradition, which Christianity always was, Early Christians thought that the world was going to end in their lifetime. Uh, the revelation of St. John is something that was supposed to happen in the lifetime of the people who were going to read it. And so Christianity has, from the beginning, been able to constantly adapt to the non-appearance of the Messiah. And the way that and Gnosticism is one mechanism, and with the, 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 the QAnon people, they have now created, they're now in the process of creating like a two-layered... Uh, simulation, like a matrix within a matrix, because Trump's in power, but things aren't changing. How do you explain that? One way you explain it, and something I don't think that Q has ever said about said, but this is, of course, you know, we're talking about we're well beyond the actual uh, text. These are the people arguing it, like the Council of Nicaea or something. Long afterwards, uh, there is a theory that 
oh yeah, all, all the bad people, a lot of them have been arrested and in fact executed, but they've been replaced by holograms or clones or robots so that no one knows because the moment isn't right to reveal it. Well, if that goes on long enough, and if Trump gets reelected especially, and things don't change, eventually the entire deep state and the entire apparatus of sicko pedophiles who run our lives will have been replaced by synthetic doubles, but everything will be the same. They will still be in charge. They will still be eating children. But they'll just be a simulated version of it because that's the only way that you can reconcile the persistent failure of the apocalypse to arrive. And that's why, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of violence. I don't, I think Q is, uh, Q's going to get violent for sure, but not in an organized way, not black shirts in the streets. Uh, it's going to be just a bunch of, uh, a bunch of psychos just who are already loose in the shoes for a number of reasons and who get a final push by this narrative, this, this all encompassing narrative for why their life is terrible. But it can never be the source of like an actual movement because its, it, its very existence and the form of it are determined by the lack of movement and the lack of even people conceiving of creating a movement. That's why they t- create Q- QAnon. That's why they grasp to it because of a fundamental understanding of their own powerlessness. Are there any good John Wilkes Booth conspiracies? I mean, well, technically... That was a conspiracy. I mean, there was there were conspirators. They were hanging out in Mary uh, Surratt's boarding house. They had a whole plan. One of them was going to kill Lincoln. One of them was going to kill Andrew Johnson. I wish that motherfucker had succeeded. One of them was going to kill Grant. Uh, and hilariously, I think it was George Azarod tries to kill uh, Henry uh, William Seward in his in his bed. But he had a neck he had a neck injury in a in a carriage crash, and he was wearing a, a neck brace. And when he went to stab him in the neck, he couldn't, he couldn't get through, and he ended up just running away. And the guy who was supposed to shoot, shoot Grant uh, just chickened out. But if you want to talk about something that, uh, you know, behind that that hasn't been revealed, I'd say the most mainstream is that Booth was working as an, as an agent of the Confederate government. And there is some proof, there is some evidence that he had contact with the Confederate government, and they were aware of his operation when he was planning to kidnap Lincoln, uh, and that they might have provided him with, uh, with material support to do it. Uh, there's no proof, though, that they were aware of his decision to just go with the uh, decapitation strategy, uh, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. Now, you want to go wackier, there's a theory that uh, Edwin Stanton, the um, Lincoln's combative Secretary of War, was actually behind the whole thing. And it was because he wanted to become president. Uh, And there's not much evidence for that except for the fact that the telegram lines out of, telegraph lines out of D.C. mysteriously uh, failed right after the assassination, uh, which people say, oh, that's that's pretty coincidental. And then there's the fact that uh, there's a number of pages removed from... uh, Booth's diary when it was recovered, and no one knows what was on them. Uh, and people build out of that the thing that, uh, that Stanton did it.
Actually, the idea of kid- Lincoln getting kidnapped is kind of fascinating because he is one of like those great souls, you know. Like Lincoln's one of those characters you read about him in history, you read his words, and you read what people say who knew him. One of those, and and I gotta say, as bad as it is politically and and, and historically, uh, the the Spielberg Lincoln movie really got that better than anything. That that his just like his uh, his ability to disarm uh, and. You know, it's interesting to imagine him interacting with a uh, with with kidnappers who hated him, and then maybe like trying to talk them into maybe seeing how that would. It'd be sort of like a it would be like a uh, reversal of the ransom of Red Chief. Only this guy's too cool for us to kidnap. He's too awesome. But they were, uh, I mean, they were foaming uh, secessionist scumbags, so it probably wouldn't have mattered. But it would have been, It might have been. It's a funny thing to think about. Another thing that actually happened that I like to think about with Lincoln is that after Martin Van Buren, the little magician, the old fox of Kinderhook, uh, or the red fox of Kinderhook, was defeated, he went on a western swing uh, to see the western states and, and uh, meet local political leaders, and he went to Springfield and he met a young Whig state senator uh, or state legislator named Abraham Lincoln, and they ended up spending the night together getting drunk. Uh, I like to imagine that. That seems like it'd be a fun convo. And the thing is, is that they were on the other side. Like, at that point, uh, Lincoln was a Whig, who were, like, their entire party existed to oppose the democracy that Van Buren had basically created. Yeah, they just went, they scissored like nuts. They went to town. Ooh, the, ooh, this is a good one. The most demonic city in America. This might take the rest of the stream. Fuck. Ooh, all right. Hmm. Well, D.C. is the obvious number one. That's number one with a bullet. That's number one. That's the obvious pick. So we have to mention it, but we have to also go beyond it because we want to be interesting with this. D.C. literally laid out by Freemasons using occult, uh, sacred geometry and architecture, like fucking Hawksmoor in London to, like, inscribe ritualized power onto the land on a cleared stretch of fucking, uh, of, of, of swampland. Built by fucking compelled labor of slaves like the goddamn pyramids. The home to, uh, to, to like, the, 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 the brainstem of, of a all-world-consuming uh, and world-destroying monstrosity of a uh, economic and political hegemony. And also it is incredibly unpleasant to be in. Uh, they call it the city of magnificent distances, but that, what that means in, in practice is that in the summer you have just giant fields of dust that just fill the air as you walk uh, trying to get from one thing to the other. Uh, and of course, all, you know, the entire federal area is, is, is all in this honestly pretentious and, and, and embarrassing and kind of cringe neoclassical architecture. Come on, dude. Get out of here. Oh, 
Oh, wow, it's like ancient Rome. Yeah, do you guys have any ideas of yourselves? Anything at all? You're just going to do Rome again? Really? I don't know, man. I think you could do better than Rome. Oh, wait a minute, no. A uh, fucking slave aristocracy with, like, a fake culture of honor to mask this brutality? Never mind. I get why you went Rome. So, D.C., definitely very, very satanic, very demonic. Uh, obviously, Los Angeles, the city of dreams, the city of, of seduction, the city where, where all of the pain and horror and exploitation of the life in America are abstracted and turned into a dream version of itself, where all the pleasure, t- pain turns into pleasure... That's pretty, that's pretty demonic. That's like fucking, that's some Hellraiser shit. But it's, it's so nice though. And you got the, and they got the water right there. Pacific Ocean can't be beat. San Francisco, of course. San Francisco and LA have, both have uh, very sinister occult histories. So uh, either one of them is very evocative that way. Like San Francisco, I mean, my God, Bohemian Groves, right, at, right there out of tiny town, founded by uh, San Francisco theater people. Uh, you've got, uh, oh, in, in Southern California, you've got uh, Jack Parsons and, the, and, and L. Ron Hubbard and the fucking, and trying to uh, summon the, the, the whore of Babylon, for God's sakes. Uh, you've got Manson in both cities, connected to MKUltra. You've got uh, Anton LaVey. Anton fucking LaVey in, in San Francisco and the Church of Satan, which, by the way, the fact that it's libertarianism should tell you something. Uh, yeah, no, they're both very wicked. And Las, An- Las Vegas is, of course, like a pure, it's pure id. It's, it's, un- it's, unpretens- it's uh, unpretentious id. It's, it's the peeled banana. <laughs> uh, but honestly, that makes it kind of less demonic in that it's less of a, uh, it's, it's less dishonest. It, it, it involves less, sedu- less trickery. It's a pure appeal to, the, to, to one's base instinct, which at least makes you have to confront those when you give in to them, rather than wrapping a doom in some sort of damask cloth of, 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 of imagined virtue, and then allowing yourself to plunge headlong into the abyss. Did I like Glasgow? Very much. Or Glasgow. Uh, yes. Did, didn't very much like Glasgow. I like Edinburgh and Glasgow, but I, and honestly, I feel like after having been there, Glasgow gets a bad rap as being like the ugly one. It's actually very, very pretty, and it's got a lot of uh, intact, you know, 19th century uh, bones to its downtown. Uh, I like them both. I like Scotland. Scotland's pro- Scotland, I think, is the prettiest part of the United Kingdom, and I've been to all of it. I didn't go to Edinburgh on the tour, but I've been there previously by myself. I actually, uh, I got, I almost bla- I blacked out and had a very bad, uh, it could have been very bad, but some very friendly uh, Scottish people that I just met were able to get me home. Because that was when I had just started learning how to drink and I did not know how to do it yet. 
that was a bad place to try to, uh, to try to practice. Wales is very pretty too. But it's just, there's something about the hills, the, the highlands, and the, the heathered shit in Scotland that's very, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, it's romantic with a large R. New Orleans has a claim. I mean, there's a reason all those, Ayn Rez, that's the reason all those vampire people love New Orleans, right? Like Anne Rice and that shit. Like there's a certain uh, ritualized, sinister shit there. But I gotta say, it's like there's a, there is a, there is a continental resistance to efficiency in New Orleans that I find in the current moment. Other generations of, like, you know, Protestants sort of said that's the devil itself, but I'd say in the current concept, context, uh, anything that resists, anything that resists uh, efficiency, at least the way that we conceive of it, uh, is, is on the side of the angels. What do you think the chances are that Trump gets kicked out of the White House by the feds if he loses? Uh, I mean, if he loses in the sense, like I was saying, if, 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 he win, if he loses, if he is certified loser of the states, if they aren't able to you know, get a court to determine that X number of ballots aren't valid or something, or that like, X impartial result is true, which could happen, um, if, if, if the mechanisms of state come to the conclusion that Biden won, yeah, He'll, in, in fact, I don't think they'll even have to. I think at that point he would give up because he's a coward. He would not ma- try to make a phone call and get one of those guys to like put tanks on the street. And I think even a guy like Barr, who's clearly fully committed to using Trump as an excuse to like, extend state prerogatives in any direction he wants them to, uh, at the benefit of the Republican Party, would recognize that that would not be a, a useful field of conflict if you had a unified you know, consensus uh, in the public that he lost, which is different than if you muddy the results. That's different. And now, then all, I kind of think all bets are off, but I also kind of don't think that's going to happen. Because it seems like the kind of thing everybody worries about because it's, it provides some sort of frisson, and more than anything, it provides a fantasy of an escape. It, does, it, 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 it uh, brings up to mind the notion that, okay, this will be the final, this will be an actual rupture. This will be the one, that, unlike all these other ruptures that ended up not being as dramatic as would have required to break loose the moorings of these systems of reproducing themselves, this is going to be it. This is going to be a, fr- a real frisson point. And as always with any kind of big incident like this, and especially one where you've got fucking corona being in, uh, the, the, the X factor and the institutions crumbling before our eyes, uh, hyper-reality just obliterating any need to have like a consensus, uh, a, a, uh, a kayfabe of political legitimacy. That's all real, but it also, it lies on the outer edge of probability. Like I think more likely is Biden wins outright, Trump mumbles and goes away. 
or Trump wins narrowly in a way that most a lot that liberals are mad at and that probably will involve what would it will be less legitimate than elections that we have uh, sponsored coups over you know it would be less legitimate by far than any Venezuelan election that has been won in by Chavez or Maduro vastly less legitimate than any election uh, that uh, uh, Evo Morales won just it'll make a mockery of all of our bullshit about about election integrity being you know the cornerstone of democratic legitimacy but mostly liberals will just whine about it they'll just mutter about it and so will the left because they're not going to fight on the streets on behalf of joe biden and even if they wanted to they wouldn't know what to do Somebody asked if Kamala is the worst VP pick since Lieberman. I think Kamala is an absolute, uh, she is the Kane. She's basically, she is as much of a, a safety pick as Tim Kane was, just with a different, slightly different political valence because he's, because the, because Biden's different than Hillary. I don't think it's a good, I don't think it's good or bad. It just is, and I honestly think probably there is no such thing as a good pick. They're all going to be terrible. And they weren't going to pick somebody they wouldn't be able to control because Biden could die at any moment, and they all know that. Yeah, the union endorsing Trump, the, the New York P, NYPD union endorsing Trump. Yeah, like that's why, that's why if, if, if there is that moment that people are fret, dreading and also kind of edging towards, that... I mean, make no bones about it, it would be enforced by the people who right now are operating under, you know, a a thin social consensus, but will be unbound by that. But again, uh, if that happened, I think it would compromise a lot of uh, cultural, like, superstructural load-bearing members of, like, uh, of if not legitimacy, efficacy of, of, of market transmission that I don't think is anything that anyone who is really in charge wants. Because there is no threat. Like, that's the big reason. Because it is really, it would just be kind of a Trump and, and the, like the lumpen uh, cult around him versus a, versus like the broader ruling class because Biden is not a threat. Biden's not worth throwing away the, the, uh, the throwing away the last shreds of you know manufactured social legitimacy, over. Uh, somebody asks if somebody says the cops seem to be even more reactionary than soldiers, and that's true. One of the big reasons is just demographics. Uh, police officers are self, that's a career, right? Like that's a, that's a career choice that is made by overwhelmingly white dudes. Whereas, uh, the military is sort of a broad last ditch, uh, social welfare program basically. So it's more, uh, demographically diverse. So there's just, there's less like concentrated white reaction to even exist. Uh, but uh, part of it is the, is, is the, is the, uh, like internal culture, even even all these Christian psychos, I mean, except for the real like you know uh, 
What was that guy's name? The one who uh, got fired under Obama. It was always freaking out about like dipping blood and like, dipping bullets in pig's blood to kill the Muslims or something. He said he was a holy warrior. Anyone remember this dude? Jerry something. Uh, anyway, there's those guys, but like most of these dudes are just, you know, they're college graduates, especially at the top. Boykin, Jerry Boykin, that's it. Uh, and as such, they need some sort of like architecture to understand their purpose, and it's about protecting America or an idea of America from a foreign threat. And that means that they have to have a certain sense of America as virtuous, as something worth defending in order to defend it. Cops, they patrol the actual streets with an attitude of hardening hostility and eventual contempt for the people that they actually are supposed to be among, who are Americans. Which means that they are not operating off of an idealized America that they are justifying their actions by referencing. They are... Um, they are immersed in a America that they see as violently split between the sheep and the wolves or whatever the fuck. Uh, because, like, army guys do that too, but for them, the wolves are outside. The wolves are not Americans. For the cops, half of America, basically, is a wolf. Or a fucking sheepdog, whatever the hell dumb thing they like to talk about. One way or another, they, like, they have, they've, they cannot... Be, their, their proximity to suppression of their fellow citizens doesn't allow them the same degree of ideological fantasy that sees America as a, like, single project to be protected, as opposed to a just terrain of brutal uh, race and culture war. The funny thing about the uh, about the, the USPS thing is, like, I, I mean, it seems like they're trying to make it harder to vote by mail, but I don't know to what extent. But like the way people the way people immediately clatched onto it, I think it's it's fear, but it's also tinged with like this. Oh God, this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the thing that breaks it. This is going to be the break, the break that we've all wanted, that we've all secretly feared, but also craved in equal measure. That uh, social death wish. And uh, so that's why it's hard to untangle, you know, when, 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 you're, when your interaction with an event or a, a series of events is much less data related to the event than an echoing series of reactions from people around you, it's very hard to extract any real coherent idea of what's going on. You're really more than anything taking in the emotional temperature of a group of people through echolocation. I do say the people who are like going and buying stamps to support the post office, 
that's pretty perfect, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't get a better example of the, of the consumer self-conception and how it's our only frame of reference for activism or uh, at personal expression of any kind. Everyone's saying they like my shirt. Thank you. I didn't. This didn't used to fit. When I first got this shirt, I wasn't able to wear it. It was too. Uh, it was too snug. But now I gotta say, it's it's actually kind of uh, kind of billowy. It is very funny that the people now whining about the U U.S. Post Office. Uh, on the Democratic side, are the people who killed it. Like, the, the, the post office is already dead. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a question of when it's going to finally collapse. And it was killed by that, this bill in 2006, the Postal Service uh, uh, Accountability Act or something like that, uh, that required them to fully fund their pension for like 50 years in advance, which no other, no private organization does and no other public, uh, no other, uh, public sector uh, employer does. It was, it was just done to give them an unsustainable budget load that would eventually necessitate uh, privatization. And when, the, when Obama and Biden and those guys got in there, uh, those motherfuckers, they didn't repeal that shit. And it was bipartisan. They voted for it too. Because... Privatizing state industry is a bipartisan consensus. It's part of that unspoken consensus that forms the real terrain of politics while we fight over the fucking uh, uh, puppet show. And so they, the Democrats might in the moment be crack, crying crocodile tears because they think, we, oh, we might lose some jobs in the White House, which is what we actually care about. Uh, but, and, you know, liberal, elite liberals who have never been to the post office uh, wouldn't deign to go. Uh, th uh, they support it with, you know, purchasing stamps and, and by hashtagging it. Uh, but they have no concern when, uh, about the, the actual trend towards privatization and undermining of the, of the service. That is, that's just something that happens. Directing it in such a way to, to create one or another political outcome, that is the bridge too far. That is the crime. And it, and it shows, like, there's, a, there's the stuff that is... There's the parts of our awfulness that are unique to party politics and part of the narrow set of interests dominating political parties as separate institutions competing for power for the people in them. 
versus the broader agenda that that bickering essentially helps uh, cover for and, uh, and helps drive through, through the political process. And you've got a good example here between the two. You've got the broader agenda of overtime turning the post office into, uh, into, I mean, into, I guess, what would it even be? You, there'd be no post offices. I guess it would just be taken over, like, we would just get rid of it. Or, like, because if they privatized it, I guess it would just get bought, right? Wouldn't it get bought immediately by, like, uh, by, by like UPS or something? Like, it would be like Russia. It would be like any time they sold off a big asset in post-Soviet Union, it would just get bought up by an oligarch. So it, it would just be, it would no longer, and then boom, you know, uh, oh, tons of people out of work, obviously, and, uh, and, this, and the, another vector for, like, any kind of resistance to uh, privatization gone. And that's fine. That's not a problem. Uh, the problem is for people who only care about the political zone and, the, and who, they, who they're rooting for uh, in the political theater, what matters is that they're interfering in their minds with uh, some sort of neutral arbitration of the electoral process, as though that exists. Lottery instead of elections. I've long thought that was the solution, honestly. I mean, not to this system. You can't just replace elections with lottery now. I'm just saying as an administrative, uh, as, just purely as a, as a representative uh, 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 structure, I prefer the lottery to elections. But that would have to be under a different economic model, obviously. I might have more guests. When I do the thing from the office with Chris, I bet we'll have guests because that's the thing that's easy. It's easy. I can't really... It's, I mean, you've seen me try to grill while doing this. It's very hard for me to divide my attention. So, uh, But if he's there, we can definitely like, get somebody in because I'm just using my phone here. I don't even, I don't even know how to like, port in another uh, video. But once we're in the office, I think we could get guests. That'd be fun. Maybe we could play some Civ together. Did I read David Foster Wallace's last book? If you're talking about The Pale King, the one he didn't finish, yes. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there. It's obviously unfinished, but there's good stuff. The wind done blew it away. The wind done blew it right away. You ain't got nothing to say. Yo, the man, you want to be talking to me? Yo, you want to be talking to me? Pale King, pretty brutally boring. Well, that was literally the point. <laughs> <laughs> it was a novel about boredom as like a spiritual concept. And I know that's uh, dumb, but I, th I found the boring stuff uh, interesting. So it wasn't boring. Look over there. Look right here. Look right here. Look, look. The wind blew. Look, look right here. Look. Look right here, man. The wind blew. See the wind blew? It's right there. Look. Look, the wind blew right there. Look. 
The wind blew the thing all the way over there. You see that? Best sequel. I'd, I mean, in my instinct is uh, Gremlins 2. Because it's not only a great movie in its own right, it is, it is specifically a sequel, and it, like, its sequelness is the text. Like, the, the idea of making a sequel is part of the, the concept of it. So it's like, it's more of a sequel. See, people say Terminator 2, and Terminator 2 is very good, but I'm sorry, Terminator is better. It just is. The original Terminator is basically perfect. Terminator 2, very good, but it's just, it's getting a little, it's getting a little of that, a little lacrimose. It's getting, it's, it's, it's that, it's the first hint of that, uh, of Cameron kind of getting a little, uh, a little, uh, mel I, what's, melodramatic or, uh, Corny, that's a good word for it. T2 is a little corny. I don't know how you could look at that compared to just the perfect instrument of term, the Terminator and say that it's better. Why? Because like he, fought, he drove a truck off of an overpass? That's an awesome scene, but... you know, and, there's a t and the effects are obviously great, but, and it's a great movie, but that, just makes us, that should just make us appreciate the original Terminator even more. Sentimentality is the word I was thinking of. See, I disagree about Aliens. I think Aliens is better than Alien, but that's partially because Ridley Scott is a garbage creature and uh, James Cameron's a five-star pimp. I don't actually like Godfather 2 that much. I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I kind of thought it was, uh, I don't know, overstuffed. wants to say Alien is better, I'm sorry. I will not bow. I will not give Ridley Scott credit for anything. Alien's good, which is more than I can say for Blade Runner. Yeah, that's right. I said it. But both of them, to me, are just so absurdly valued beyond, uh, beyond their, their, their actual virtues.
I do love Dan. I, will, I do love Dan O'Bannon, of course. I'll respect Dan O'Bannon. He's a king, and I and I choose to believe everything good in Alien is him and not really Scott. Did I read Cracked? I had a subscription to Cracked. I don't know why I had it, and not Mad, but I, I just. I guess Mad felt too. Uh, Mad felt old-fashioned because Mad was so old, and I, I'm not. I'm sure Crack wasn't even much less old, but it felt more. I don't know, dynamic. Even though it was all the same shit. Most zooted president is very easy. JFK. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, like Hitler, was absolutely flying on amphetamines at all times. He had a guy, a Dr. Feelgood, uh, who just boosted his ass up with uh, amphetamine injections on the regular because, partially because, he was riddled with uh, pain. Uh, he had the image of, you know, this, 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 this vigorous young jock, the uh, the new front of the new generation of Americans born in this century, but he was act, you know him playing touch football on the lawn with the with the boys. But he was actually wildly ill his whole life. He had Addison's disease, which can make your eyeballs bug out, uh, uh, and I think it's a thyroid condition. And he also had, uh, courtesy I think of the PT one hundred nine or or something else, just an awfully bad back. Uh, like and he was in he was in a lot of pain basically all the time because of his back injuries. Graves' disease, that's it. Uh, Lincoln had Addison's disease. Graves' disease, correct, sorry. Uh, and he was just in pain all the time, and so he was on medication all the time. And he would get, he would get boosted, and then he would go score with uh, two secretaries in the pool under the White House, have uh, affairs with the... Uh, the mistresses of multiple mob bosses. Oh, Lincoln had Marfan syndrome. That's right. I always forget which they are. No, great, you're right. And it wasn't Graves' disease. It was Addison's disease. Who the fuck is trying to gaslight me? No, he had Addison's disease. Lincoln had Marfan syndrome. None of them had Graves' disease. I always thought a funny counterfactual would be, you know, like, uh, JFK's uh, JFK's Dr. Feelgood comes in a little bit too feeling good himself and like overdoses Kennedy and his heart explodes like on day three of the Cuban Missile Crisis that's a funny counterfactual because uh, uh, LBJ was not taken seriously during the Cuban Missile Crisis or ever by the, white, by the, by the Kennedys which was bad in some cases because he actually he kind of knew what they needed to do to get civil rights passed, but they, they thought they knew better than him on that. But when it came to the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was like the one pushing the maximal conflict line. He was saying, we got to like escalate this. And they kind of just ignored it. But uh, it's interesting to imagine that if he gets in there, uh, right like in the middle of the crisis, if that doesn't uh, change the outcome in a significant way. Uh, RFK's assassination is very interesting. I've said that I am a, 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 a agnostic on JFK, uh, and a lot of that is just because I, 
I, I got so much information about it at some point that it just, it stopped having meaning really. And I just kind of wondered if it's just one of those things where if you take any event of significant size and an effect on lives and you trace it out, you'll find like this pattern of stuff that appears to be like incontrovertible evidence of, uh, of, a, of a conspiracy when in reality you're dealing with something that is so multifaceted and multifractal that any any preconceived notion can be reaffirmed by tracing things that come off of it. But the RFK assassination is also very interesting in its own right. Uh, he was shot right in the back of the head, even though everyone in the uh, kitchen was in agreement that Saran Saran was a good 7 to 10 feet in front of him. Uh, they There's conflicting arg uh, accounts of how many uh, bullet holes and bullet wounds were accounted for relative to the number of bullets that were fired by the pistol, or the capable of being fired by the pistol that he had. Yes, the speckling. He had, he had, he had a powder stippling behind his ear, as though he were shot directly behind his ear, uh, even though Sirhan was right in front of, was in front of him. Uh, you have all the w wacky MK Ultra stuff. Uh, you have the Sirhan's own claim about being blacked out. Uh, the automatic writing, which is very odd, uh, not very much like uh, most assassins' diaries because it's not like it's not like it's gibberish or uh, or like convoluted conspiracy thinking or like Arthur Bremer just sort of banal narcissism. It's just the same thing over and over again. Very odd. And he actually was, I believe, he was treated for a head injury uh, after a uh, fall from a horse because he was a jockey at a, at a medical institution in uh, California that had MK Ultra funding, but who knows. Um, and then there's the fact that the guy who was standing directly behind RFK, the private security guard who was hired out from Hughes Aircraft, uh, Thane Eugene Caesar, uh, was in possession of, a, uh, of the exact caliber of pistol that uh, was used in the killing, uh, was also, and was employed by... Uh, Hughes, as I said, and the guy in charge of Hughes' tool was uh, the guy, this guy, Bob Mayhew. And Bob Mayhew is one of the most fucking uh, Jerry, uh, James Elroy-ass characters in American history. He, he is like a guy, he's the guy when, 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 when Elroy writes about guys in like uh, American tabloid, the government fi fixers and shit, he's thinking of Bob Mayhew. He was an FBI agent. Uh, he was also a CIA asset. He uh, coordinated uh, 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 the FBI or um, the CIA and the mafia's attempts to kill Castro. Uh, and then he went to work for uh, Howard Hughes. So it's very, uh, it's very eyebrow raising. But once again, I have no idea. <laughs> I have to. You said to get some block work. 
Is the soul real, someone asked. That's a good question. Is the soul real? I think it is. I mean, the soul, I would say, is defined as just our... Uh, it's the human operating off of our understanding, our awareness, or lack of awareness, really, of what is motivating us. It's, it's, it's stepping through... It's stepping across the, the necessary leap from a partial conception of the world around us to acting on that world, even though we know we don't know everything. That's what, continually doing that is what accumulates the spirit. So, I mean, like, it's not a ghost or anything. It's just a, if you, if you need a word for, for the accumulated action, the accumulated choice made in ignorance of every human, you can call that the soul. But you probably can't bust it with a, uh, with a proton pack. Hello. 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 No, it's not the unconscious. The unconscious is all souls. The unconscious is all experience. The unconscious is all matter and humanity and time and space. The, the individual soul that is, is, is that that like revolves around the, the, the partial perception of separateness that we all have by virtue of our individual perception of apparatus that creates an idea of a self. And then we act according to that self, which is just our accumulated perception reduced by our specific ignorance relative to the reality we're trying to perceive. And that, that, and that there's a gap there between the reality we're trying to perceive and the reality that exists. And we still have to act, we still have to be. And making that choice is what creates identity. It's basically about perceiving time, right? Because like I've said, humans, conscious beings, can perceive time three-dimensionally because we understand time in terms of we have a memory of past, we have a consciousness of present, and we can project into the future. But our projections of the future are limited by our data. We can only guess. Now the thing is our guesses are better or worse depending on how much sensory data and ability to process it and compare it to other people's we have. So, there is, so this is not fixed, the gap, right? And it's impossible to fully bridge because if someone could fully understand what is leading them to the moment that they're in, fully understand every influence on their on their moment, every, every, every different thread pushing them, well, then they would be able to perceive time completely. They would be able to project forward perfectly all things. They would be able to see, literally, the future. But we can't do that, because we're, we're, we are individual, and our, our, our machinery uh, and our circumstances are all randomized, essentially, and, uh, and have their own distinct 
formation effects on us that prevent us from getting to full consciousness of time. And so we can only approximate. We can imagine a future and then move towards one we want, but it's just a guess. And we have to have some sort of uh, belief. We have to convince ourselves that this is the thing to do. And the thing that drives us to do that is our collection of desires, conscious and mostly unconscious. And that is what pushes us forward. So that is the spirit. That's the soul. And then the, like, the, 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 the task of life is to return, be able to try to consciously return that soul to the unconscious collective soul. Because it's separateness that drives our fear of death and all the, the trauma that, that piles on top of that. I've never done DMT, to my knowledge. Somebody might have get, given me some without my consent. I mean, I took it and I thought it was weed, but I didn't ever have it confirmed it was DMT either. It felt weird, but it, it certainly wasn't enough to do whatever that people tell me it does. I have never seen a clockwork elf. I would be interested in seeing one, though. I would love to go to CPAC again. I would specifically like to go after uh, Biden wins, presuming he does, uh, because I think CPAC, I suspect it's much more interesting when uh, the, the right is uh, uh, broken up and is competing for like a new, uh, competing between uh, sects for, for, uh, for prominence, like in the wilderness, because CPAC was a trip, but it was just a Trump love fest. And that was, obviously, it was grotesque to watch, and seeing his speech is still one of the most surreal experiences of my life. But there's a fundamental sto- uh, like uh, stagnance, whereas I would think it would be fun to go there with Biden in there and just see the different, the different prophets coming out to try to uh, you know, whip up support for their particular uh, sect. You know, and, and, and anoint a new messiah. I think that'd be interesting. Alright, I'm gonna ask one it's one more question and then I'm uh, I gotta get out of here. Thank <laughs> you.
call me out of surgery? And I showed them. Surgery? What are you going to go? My, my people. I said, my people. I'm sitting here. We deal with my people. What do you people like? What do you deal with these birds? What do you people like? They're flabbergasted. What is it? I don't know you. I don't know you. Russians. Yeah, I know all of them. But they'll have you on MEC? I don't know. Over there, over there, over there. So what's their numbers for? I guess there's no good questions. I'll just close on this. Somebody said somebody would announce that they were Q on CPAC. I would bet more than one person would have tried to announce they were Q on CPAC. I could I could see some like junior, uh, some like uh, hack congressman or something. You're like, hey, if I want to be president, I'll just convince them I'm Q. That would be really funny. He had competing Qs. Q fight. All right, guys. I'm going to peace out. See ya.